The scripture reading this morning is taken from Acts 24, verses 1 through 21. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Again, that's Acts 24, verses 1 through 21. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some, some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning and welcome again to Holy Trinity Church. I'm John Dennis, one of the pastors here, and it is great to be back in the pulpit uh, after being out of the pulpit, really thankful for Arthur Jackson and Sully Curtin, Joel Miles, uh, Ashanti Petaway, and the other leaders who have opened God's word to us. Amy and I have had a great summer, and we are looking forward to this fall and uh, excited about the next season of ministry. We have uh, been working our way through the book of Acts, and we are in a section that we're calling All for the Gospel. Because the Apostle Paul and the others in the church are really laying down their lives for this idea that is called good news. And one of the things that you'll pick up as you read through the book of Acts is the imagery of resilience. And I'm going to ask you for a moment, if you were to picture someone who embodies resilience, who would that be? 
could be an athlete, could be a business person. For me, it takes me all the way back to when I was in high school and there was an athlete who played for the Chicago Bears whose name was Walter Payton, also known as Sweetness. <laughs> and uh, he was born in 1954 in Missouri um, and passed away in 1998. But in the 80s, he was really the best running back in the NFL. And he had this ability to encounter an opponent and then spin and break the tackle, or as another opponent was coming towards him, to leap right over him. I'm not kidding. So when he was in high school, his long jump was 22 feet, uh, 11 and one quarter inches, so almost 23 feet for his long jump. So it was not uncommon for him to see an opponent coming before him, spin a little bit this way, see the next one, and then simply <laughs> sail right over uh, his opponent as he came that way. And I'm putting the imagery of resilience in your mind because if there's really one uh, quality that I feel like we need in 2020 and 2021, it's resilience. It feels like in some ways that things just keep coming at us and no matter how much we spin or how much we hit the ground, soon enough there's something else coming our way. Maybe you uh, scrolled through the, the names and bios of those who were killed in Afghanistan um, this last week. Or maybe you're praying for friends and family in Louisiana who are possibly in the course of the swirling Hurricane Ida. Because Holy Trinity has so many medical workers, I think of uh, and talk to the medical workers who have been working for 15, 18 months, almost without uh, let up, it feels like. And then with the new Delta variant and Lambda, and then also the ter terrific polarization in our culture, uh, having to continue to care for people who in one sense have even denied the disease that they are now carrying. I have a friend I was with this week. I was in Arizona for part of the week and a friend there who um, is Latino and African-American has a church in New York City. He lost 15 uh, members in his congregation to COVID in a very short period of time. And then talks to people who say that the disease doesn't exist and it. It causes him grief and trauma. On top of that, uh, in December, his building, his church building, was consumed by fire. So it feels like, <laughs> how do you keep pushing on in 2020 and 2021? Um, and so we need this kind of imagery of somebody who's able to keep going and keep pushing on. The Apostle Paul, if there's a, a picture of resilience in the New Testament, certainly Paul would qualify for that. In fact, the book of Acts, in part, is about the flexibility and resilience of the New Testament church in the midst of persecution, in the midst of, in some cases, famine. And for Paul, this is trial number two of four, we can count even five, that he's before he goes before uh, the Romans in the tribunal, 
and then he goes before the Sanhedrin, and now he's going to be before Felix, and then he's going to be before Festus, and then he's going to be before Agrippa, as it, and he just keeps going. He keeps popping up. And the question that I want to pose to the text is, what is it that keeps the Apostle Paul going here? And there's something that emerges out of the second half of the text. All this slander comes in verses 1 to 9 against him. Fl- slander and flattery. And then in the second half, in verses 10 to 21, you start to see something shining through where Paul mentions the resurrection two times. He says at the very end, verse 21, that he's on trial because of what he said about the resurrection. And the resurrection has shaped almost a kind of new life for him that you might call not just cognitive belief, but a way of life that's founded in the resurrection that's called the way of Jesus. So today I'm just going to divide the text into two parts. Verses 1 to 10, I'm going to call resilience before slander, or resilience before corrupted religion even, is what you see in verses 1 to 9. And then the second part, we'll just call it resilience by resurrection. So if I had to put a title on the sermon today, it would be resilience by resurrection. I want to offer that to you as a kind of tool for yourself of how do you keep going? and challenge you to think about the hope of the resurrection as being the thing that keeps you moving as challenges continue to come your way. So will you bow with me now as we pray? Our Father in heaven, we do bow before you, and we, uh, we thank you that the Apostle Paul was undaunted, sure, struggling, sure, hurting, sure, ill at different times, beaten, but that his hope in the reality of something that happened in history kept him going. And we pray that that would keep us going as well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So verses 1 to 9, I'm just going to put a header on it, which is resilience before slander. Because what happens is the Apostle Paul is put on trial by uh, before someone whose name is Felix and uh, spoken against by uh, a spokesman named Tertullus. No, no um, disrespect to the lawyers who are in the room right now, but uh, Tertullus is, uh, I, met a, I met a lawyer just on the break there and told him that he was going to be insulted during the sermon, just so that you know. But that's par for the course in our common culture today. There's a guy named Tertullus who comes in the pa- passage who in one sense becomes the spokesperson for the Roman powers and the Jewish powers. People don't know exactly if he, is, or if he is Roman or if he is a Hellenistic Jew. Scholars are divided by it. But what we do know is that he becomes the tool, so to speak, of the relentless power of Rome and the relentless power of Judaism as they combine. I don't know if you've ever taken a... Uh, a magnifying glass and shined it on a piece of grass and kind of focused it and then saw something wither or, or go up in flames. It's almost like the Roman power in this passage, Roman power and Jewish power are put together as two magnifying glasses and they're focusing on the Apostle Paul to see if he will wither. This is how uh, John Stott describes the power of Rome and Jerusalem in that time. 
Jerusalem and Rome were the two centers of enormous power blocks. Rome represents military power. Rome represents the far-flung empire, whereas Jerusalem represents history and tradition, where Rome has this enormous geographic grasp. Uh, Jerusalem and the faith of the Jews goes back 2,000 years all the way to Abraham. And the combined might of Jerusalem and Rome come together here in this passage that takes place in Caesarea in order to focus on the Apostle Paul. And Stott puts it this way. He says, a solitary dissident like Paul had little chance of survival. His chances would resemble that of a butterfly before a steamroller. He would be crushed, utterly obliterated in the face of of the earth. That's not exactly a picture of resilience, but what I want to show you in this first little section here is the accusations against Paul, but I also want to show you how those accusations are combined with what you might call corrupt religious power. There are a lot of people who are um, deconstructing today in their faith, uh, in broader Christianity, and part of the reason why people are deconstructing their faith is because they have encountered what you might call a kind of toxic religion that had power that was not being used to serve the people, but actually to take advantage of the people. And what Jesus speaks out against very strongly in the Gospels is corrupt power. So that sometimes, like in Matthew 23, he calls the Pharisees and the scribes, he calls them a brood of vipers. And what he's doing is, Jesus himself is deconstructing abusive power so that people might see the beauty and the grace of what we're going to call the way of Jesus in just a moment. So let me just show you kind of three signs of corrupt religious power in verses 2 to 9. First of all, one of the things that corrupt religious power does is it kisses up to or subverts itself to political power. Um, it's, here's what it says in verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias, really one of the most powerful people in Judaism, came down with some elders, that is, he comes down from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and a spokesman, one Tertullus, uh, we already mentioned him, and he brings them before Felix. Now, Felix was a Roman who was extremely powerful, and this whole, the whole courtroom scene here is in front of Felix, who's the governor of Judea and Samaria. He, this guy started out as a slave, Antonius Felix did, and he was extremely wicked. Here's how the, a Roman historian describes Felix, as cruel, licentious, and base. The way he met his wife, Drusilla, who we'll meet a little bit later in the passage, is that she was married to somebody else, and he decided he wanted to take her as his wife, and so he stole her as his wife. So when Tertullius begins to accuse Paul, what he starts with is flattering the powers that be. And you see this happening in, in religion sometimes, that it cozies up to political power. Here's what it says. Here's what he says um, when he begins his speech. Since we, through you, enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix reforms are being made in this nation. These things are not actually true. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude, 
but to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. Now, that's a rhetorical uh, strategy that was used in the first century. They call it um, captatio benevolente, which is basically currying favor, trying to begin in a... You, this happens in, even in our courts sometimes today. Your honor, there's a very respectful uh, demeanor that people have. And Paul will have the same demeanor as well, but he goes overboard. Felix would know these things that he's saying about him are not true. But what he's doing is using his words in order to curry political power that he will then focus against Paul. And that is part of what's happening in our culture today, is that religion is becoming so enmeshed with political power that it loses its saltiness, so to speak. You see the beginning process of there, that here. And then the second thing is that happens is he begins to, and this is also a feature of corrupt religious power, he starts to demean Paul as a child of God. Listen to what he, what, what he calls him. He calls him a plague. Some of the texts call him a pest, okay? But he calls him a, uh, a plague. We found this man to be a plague who stirs up riots. Now, what does the word plague bring to your mind? I mean, for me, it's like bubonic plague. Uh, 1347 to 1352 killed 25 million to 50 million people, or for the biblically minded, maybe Moses and Pharaoh, a plague of, of blood and of toads and, and uh, those kinds of things in the Old Testament, or our pandemic. But the imagery is that Paul is spreading something. And what abusive religious power tends to do is it tends to take somebody's worth and status and demean it. And that's what he's intentionally doing here. And that's, we, we live in a culture today where people are very apt to do this as religious people, to take their words and to demean other people. And so that's the second little sign of, of what he's doing here is he's demeaning, what, this is what Tertullus is doing, is he's marrying political power with religious power in order to demean the Apostle Paul here. Starts by kind of kissing up to the governor, and then he begins to demean him. And he really bathes, the third thing that he does is he kind of bathes uh, in slander against the Apostle Paul. Here's the third charge. He even tried to profane the temple. Now, this is a, a charge that happened kind of also in uh, chapter 21, verse 28. What, what people thought had happened, which was not true, is that Paul had, people thought Paul had brought a guy named Trophimus beyond the court of the Gentiles into a spot where only the Jews could come in the temple. And so he, that's why he was arrested. But he actually didn't do that. And, and he shows that later. All that he really did is he had Trophimus with him and some other uh, Ephesians, some other Asians with him. And uh, they thought that he was defiling the holy place. Uh, these charges are completely false. And so I just, I just want to pause there because I want to show you that what, what's happening is Paul is living with resilience in what you might call a world of slander. And if there's anything that's begun to characterize our civil, civil discourse over the last two or three years or maybe five years, it is this uh, tendency to come with vehemence and vitriol against other people, which you see kind of rooted in this text. And uh, I, I want to paint a picture of contrast with what the Lord Jesus Christ was like. 
in the midst of that. Because here's what Peter writes in 1 Peter. He speaks of Jesus and says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And there's a tendency in our flesh, if you say something negative against me, then I'm coming at you just as well. And if you ramp something up to this level, then I'm going to ramp something up to this level. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. Slander is not new. Reviling is not new. It's been around for a long time. But it says what Jesus did is he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Resilience in slander requires keeping our eyes on the one who judges justly. Because what we want to do is bring judgment now on other people. And what Paul is doing, even though he's speaking to a judge, he's looking forward to a day that's coming when all people will be judged. So that's resilience in slander. And the way of Jesus is very different from this kind of world of slander. In fact, true, truly walking in resurrection power cannot be squelched by the corrupt and religious powers of the day. So resilience before slanders, verses 1 to 10. And then the second half here is, I'm just calling it resilience by resurrection or the resilience of the way of Jesus. So uh, Tertullius comes and brings these charges against the Apostle Paul, that he's a troublemaker, that he's the uh, sect leader or ring leader of the Nazarenes because Jesus was from Nazareth, that he's causing trouble, that he's a plague, that he's a pest, that he had uh, desecrated the temple. And now Paul begins to respond. And in, in, in actuality, he also begins with this kind of captatio uh, benevolente, but it's a little toned down. All he, all he says is, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He's a little bit accommodating, but he is not stooping to the level of flattery where he's lying towards him. He says, you can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone stirring in the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. And what Paul is actually doing here is he's, and this is an aspect of the resurrection lifestyle, but also the way of Jesus, in the face of slander, he just roots himself in facts. So when slander is coming, it doesn't mean that there can be no response, but here he's simply rooting it in the facts that you can judge for yourself, that it, wasn't, it was just 12 days ago that he had gone up to the temple. The second thing that the Apostle Paul does here, which you might call uh, kind of walking in the way of Jesus, is he shows that the way of Jesus is not merely, again, cognitive information, but it's a lifestyle of worship. So whereas corrupt and powerful, abusive religion tries to conform you into a set of rules, what the Apostle Paul says is, actually, there's a way of worship that is honoring to the Old Testament and New Testament, but it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what he says here. He says, I confess to you that according to the way which you call a sect, or they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and in the prophets. So the way of Jesus here is rooted in the facts, 
It's a way of worship, but it is also what you might call a way of hope. And this is really the key to the Apostle Paul's ability to continue to persevere. Listen to what he says in verse 15. He says that he has a hope in God which these men accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. In other words, one of the core ideas of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that even though we go through trials every day, God, as we sang a little bit earlier, will one day lead us home. That there's, there is hope at the end of all of the trials. That we will sing one day for ages and ages and ages before. That's the resurrection. So the reason why the Apostle Paul, when he gets knocked to the ground, can continue to get up is because he has this hope in the resurrection. It's interesting because Eastern religions and Western religions are a bit different from one another in how they view history. Eastern religions have less of what you might call a dynamic of history that it is going towards something. And one of the ideas that's infused in, in Western thinking is that and, and this is where we get kind of the idea of the progress of history, is that history is going somewhere. And what Paul is saying here is that everybody who's in the courtroom, everybody who is in this room at this moment, will one day stand before God in judgment. We have a preacher coming up to the front here. She can join us. All of us will one day stand before the judgment. And that's part of what keeps the Apostle Paul going. While he's on trial, he's also point, pointing to a trial. So his way, this resurrection way, the way of Jesus, is rooted in the facts. It's a lifestyle of worship. It's also rooted in the hope of the resurrection. The last thing that Paul says here is, you might say it this way, that it's a way of freedom. That the way of Jesus is a way of freedom because we are set free from having to keep the law all on our own, and we're set free from the bondage of the sin of this world. This is how he expresses this idea of freedom. He says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. In other words, God has given us the Holy Spirit and a conscience and his word not to have to meticulously strive over every little thing in the law, but to live by his spirit set free from having to achieve on our own, knowing that God has already accomplished our righteousness in the cross. And so God liberates us through the resurrection. You can think of it this way. The resurrection is so core to Christianity because it gives us hope that in whatever disease or failure we might have, one day we will be raised again. The resurrection gives us hope in the midst of guilt because an aspect of the resurrection is that your sins were left in the ground when Jesus was raised from the dead. So that by putting our faith in him, we are declaring with him that we are going to live a new life with him. 
So we live in this world of slander. We live in this world where things just keep coming at us and we need resilience. And there's one particular hope that the Apostle Paul had, which is unique to Christianity, which speaks of the resurrection of Christ from the dead that we will all, all follow in because of him, that we might live now in newness of life. So when you get knocked down this week, when you have challenges this week, what I want you to do is to remember those words, resilience by resurrection. That you keep going because of the resurrection. Think of how unstoppable that resurrection was. This one who's in the grave could not be kept there. This one whose breath had stopped now begins to breathe and bursts forth in glory and is raised from the dead. That's your trajectory. No matter what hits you this week, that's where you're going. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Paul's hope in the resurrection that kept him going. Where he says, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you to this day. We thank you that that resurrection happened in history and that it's called us to a lifestyle of worship and that it gives us hope and that it cleanses our consciences before you. In the world of slander, Lord, help us not to be discouraged, but to keep our eyes on the resilient one who rose from the dead. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.